and, and this is goofy and then I'll be done talking, but I often think about it. I don't know if anybody watched the Care Bears when they were little. I think there's been various iterations, but when I was a kid, that was a big thing. Um, and they did like the Care Bear stare where they're like staring out of their belly or something. I don't know, their little emblem. Mm -hmm. But part of me is like, all right, we're just going to stare this thing down and sit with it until we're all okay in the same space. So we all say, oh, ho, ho, remember the coronavirus. Hello, and welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I'm Grace Pratt, our editor, and I'm joined by almost our entire podcast team today as we're coming together virtually at an appropriate social distance to connect and talk about what's going on in the integrated care world right now. We have a really great and hopefully timely show, although timely right now could mean that when this is released, you know, in a few days or a week that it's all going to be out of date. But I think there's some things that are principles that just endure. So we're going to be talking about team conflict, which unfortunately is present regardless of whether we're in crisis or not sometimes. Um, but also we're going to start by a, a discussion around what's happening in our clinics and around the country and the world with the coronavirus. Before we get to that, let's all introduce ourselves and say hello. Uh, as I am prone to do, I have an icebreaker question for us. And uh, it is, if you could float in a hot air balloon over any city or place in the world, what would you choose to float over? And we were laughing before the call because in this age of social distancing, that sounds kind of like the ideal mode of air transportation. So we are approved to float over Anyway, uh, let's start with Amber. Say hello and tell us where you'd like to see. So I hope that everyone is doing really well. I'm actually so thankful that um, we're having this discussion today because I've missed you guys and I've actually missed people in general. So um, <laughs> I'm just really happy to be able to connect with you all and see your faces and um, have this, you know, time to, to talk and just have some community with you. So I thought about this question a lot. And even though I saw it from ground level, I would love to be able to go and see Greece from above. I just think it would be really beautiful to see the water and um, Santorini, especially with all the, the white buildings and the winding roads and different things like that, I think would be really beautiful to see from above. That sounds really nice. Uh, Christine? Hello, everybody. Can I just say it is really validating, though, as someone who has worked from home for years in isolation, it's really validating to see the entire world getting stir crazy. And I'm like, yes, it's not as easy as everyone <laughs> thinks. It is lonely. Um, but life circumstances happen. So, um, and I think it is important to remember, too, that there are a lot of people who aren't able to work from home, either because they're on the front line, like um, some of us here who are still you know, going into clinics or hospitals um, and others just because they, um, you know, can't work right now. And that's really scary for a lot of people. So I am thankful for the opportunity for this. So my husband and I actually escaped to Mexico for the first time a few weeks ago while all of this imploded as we were gone. And so I think I'd probably like to float right back over Riviera Maya and remember the time that we're like, it was five days. It was literally five days ago. And we're like, did that actually happen? I don't, I really don't think so. So perhaps a little reminder that yes, we were relaxed for a few hours at some point this year. Great. Bridget? I'm Bridget Beachy um, in Yakima, Washington. And I actually uh, Googled the highest mountain, which I thought was Mount Everest, 
but then there's things that said it wasn't or maybe it's not like as big i couldn't figure it out so <laughs> i'm going with mount everest because <laughs> okay. um, i just thought it'd be you know if it's one of the largest highest mountains in the world it'd be cool to go look at it and if there's more information on better mountains that are even more spectacular i'd be open to that changing my answer <laughs> so email us <laughs> let us know <laughs> right. i can just actually on this podcast being like that's not it at all really yeah. i mean it's just in height but not width and <laughs> <laughs> so if we have any uh amateur geographers out there please feel free to let bridget know which mountain she should hot air balloon over Neftali. My name is Neftali Serrano. I'm the chief executive officer of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. This is an interesting question because the first thing that came to my mind was actually uh, a fictitious place because uh, I, people are going to crucify me for saying this. I don't even know why I'm documenting this, but I play this uh, game called Fortnite. If you have kids between the ages of like seven and... Uh, males who are f 50 years old, uh, you you know what Fortnite is. Um, it's this cartoonish game, and the way you start the game is you float on a hot air balloon bus, and everybody's on this, it's called the party bus. And so you're on this bus, you're floating over an island, and then you jump off to get onto the island, and then you play this whole big game of... of uh, you know, shooting other people to be the last man standing on the island. Last man or woman standing. You can choose whatever avatar you want. So uh, I play this game. I started playing it to connect with my 10-year-old son, who's, you know, uh, plays a lot with his friends. Uh, and then I, I, I kind of got hooked on it myself. So I'm choosing to float over the Fortnite island I like it. And I appreciate that education. Now, the only thing I know about Fortnite is there's like some dances involved, right? Okay. So are the dances just virtually or can you do any of the dances yourself? Natalia? I'm curious. I'm, I'm so uncoordinated. I'm, <laughs> I'm a bad Latino. I have no rhythm. You know, our listeners are just on audio. You could have you claimed that you're doing one here for us right now, but he's too honest. <laughs> yeah, your reactions would have told them everything. Yeah. No. no, but the dances are really cool. That's, uh, that's a fun part of the game. It's just, it's goofy. Fun. Uh, well, I think I'd float over Paris. Uh, I, you know, one of the places that my mom got to travel with some of her close friends uh, several years before she passed was to go to Paris. And I know that she had a wonderful time there and I've never been to Europe. And I think I would feel close with her doing that. Um, speaking of her, I missed you guys last month and I thought it was an excellent podcast when I listened back. And I certainly uh, really appreciated the thoughts and wishes that you guys sent our way and the honor that you showed to her. So thank you for that. Well, uh, let's just shift into the conversation that we need to have that everyone's talking about. And like we said before, this may be outdated by the time our listeners even hear this because it feels like things are changing by the minute right now. Um, but the whole world and certainly our medical world and our integrated care world is being impacted by the novel coronavirus. So first of all, just how are you guys doing? How are your systems doing? What changes are you making? And then maybe we can zoom out and talk about 
some changes that have really been big system level changes about billing and changing the delivery of care and things like that. But first of all, how are y'all doing? I can hop in. Everybody's like, wait, how are we doing? (laughs) I I, I think there's this just overwhelming weirdness and I don't know what else to say besides like, what is going on? I got this week's issue of JAMA and I opened it up and I'm like, oh, there's an article about it, right? And like we were talking about, I mean, they wrote it a month ago. So everything was obsolete besides the background information, which was useful. But I feel like that's kind of where we're living right now. And as somebody who usually has to protect myself from the news on a daily basis or from like Facebook on a daily basis, I don't go on anymore. This has been really hard because, you know, like my pediatric dentist has texted me multiple times, like urgent. And I'm like, it's not urgent. We don't have appointments. Like this is, there's also, I think balancing being aware of everything that's going on. And then also finding out how to even put up a distance because, you know, I work online, right? My students are all online, which is great for us right now. But also, you know, we need email. I need phone because there are things that are getting canceled that I may need to know about. And so I think um, my husband and I have had this talk yesterday about, you know, when the medical professionals are doing this, dealing with this all day long, coming home, it is really hard to decompress because the messages seem to be near constant in emails and, you know, every business I've ever gone to has let me know their plan for COVID, which is wonderful, but not necessary. I I don't need to know what Bed Bath & Beyond is doing. Correct. Yeah. Like I love that for you, Bed Bath & Beyond, but I, I, you know, need to know basis. And so, you know, balancing that professionally, we started our new semester this week. So I have a bunch of students who now, you know, just are starting their doctoral program amidst this while they are all in clinics during the day trying to figure out what's going on or you know my students who are doing their research clinical research who now have to change all of their projects so i think it's a lot about holding all of these places for everybody else and then also for myself and i think this is where i really appreciate act and really it's like okay we'll just expand and we'll make space for this and we'll sit with it. And, and this is goofy and then I'll be done talking. But I often think about it. I don't know if anybody watched the Care Bears when they were little. I think there's been various iterations. But when I was a kid, that was a big thing. Um, and they did like the Care Bear stare where they're like staring out of their belly or something. I don't know. Their little emblem. Mm-hmm. But part of me is like, all right, we're just going to stare this thing down and sit with it until we're all okay in the same space. And so, you know, managing that with my students and, um, you know, my family and my kids and and myself too, I think is just all part of a process. And at least I think we're all in it together, right? Like how often can we say that literally everyone on the planet is going through a version of the same thing? Yeah, I think um, it's been interesting to experience this. Obviously it's something that none of us have experienced in our lives before. And so the thing that I've been feeling just in the last 24 hours is a little bit more of the collective sense of grief around the loss of life routines, um, the strain on everyone's families. Um, I've been feeling a lot of the collective grief of like healthcare professionals because I know the strain that our network is under. So many of the folks on the listserv, I mean, you can read in between the lines, the strain, the stress, the heavy thinking that people are having to do 
And Christine, you're right. The thing is, it doesn't stop because you bring it home. And then when you come home, you're thinking about your kids and their education and, and all the things that they're not able to do. I mean, my kids are not able to play with any other kids. And and just not being able to, to unplug from that reality, uh, I think is just, I think gr- grief is the best way I can put it. That's what it felt like for the last 24, 48 hours. And so, yeah, I think I've been sort of mindfulnessing the heck out of this thing. <laughs> if that's a, it's a, that's a verb. It's just trying to figure out how to stay present uh, to, to all of it, to, to really work through it, process it, and be able to move on to the next thing that needs to be worked on. Um, I mean, we alluded to how fast things are changing. And I think that one of the hardest parts is the uncertainty and the not knowing and the feeling that literally anything could happen. It feels a little bit like there's just no way to know where we're going or how long it's going to last or how bad it's going to get. And I know that one of the ways that I cope is to kind of intellectualize things. So then I think about, you know, what do I know with my expertise and being in this field. And I know that when grief is ambiguous, it complicates it and it makes it harder and it is more traumatic and more complex. And I think we are experiencing a collective uncertainty that it just really compounds what's going on and the open-endedness of it makes it really tough. Yeah, I think that just the complexities of, of being a human uh, it's been a an emotional roller coaster, a cognitive roller coaster for me. So in one hand, I'm so freaked out about our patients and their well-being and the economy and what that's going to do. Part of my brain is like, man, I think that the economy is going to end up in the long term maybe having more of a negative effect than the virus itself. But I don't know that to be the case. And so these are just thoughts. Obviously, we'll wait for the science on that. And so it's just been this up and down. And then so like internally for myself, I'm so grateful to have a job where I'm needed no matter what I can do telehealth. I can do, we're doing half days, wellness days where people are coming in if they're under 60 and in good health. And then the afternoon we're doing phone visits. And so I feel like, man, I can contribute. I can be there for my team. I can be there for patients. Um, my job feels, knock on woods, feels stable economically. I'm like, okay, we can get through this. And so that's one side. And then the other half is just like extreme fear for all the, all the other folks who maybe who don't have it. And then I feel the guilt that shows up of like, I don't know, that privilege guilt that happens. And then it's like, I don't deserve to have my feelings because I'm in a good, so it's, it's just up and down. So I like what y'all are saying is just like, you know, opening space for all of it. And it's okay for me to be both grateful and in grief. And then selfishly, I like to travel. I like to do things as an extrovert. This is my own personal like nightmare. But um, I can I can get through it. <laughs> I read a tweet um, that a friend of mine shared, and it says, "If we view ourselves as besieged victims who need to go into hiding, then we will cultivate fear and hoarding. If we view ourselves as a community working hard to protect the most vulnerable above us, then we will cultivate courage and helping. Mindset matters, and that's where I just keep landing, trying to maintain space for hope." trying to stay reasonable, to look for the good that exists. Cause, and part of this is I am an annoyingly optimistic person. I just 
can own that from the beginning. Uh, Christine can attest. It, it doesn't matter how dark the situation gets. I can find some kind of positive spin to give. I'm going to call you every day, Grace, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I, I continue to have hope in humanity and our resilience as people and our ability to come together as good and our ability to adapt. And we have to, you know, find that flexibility and find that common thread and, and look for each other. Um, so I want to shift our conversation a little bit to some of the news that's happening around this. You know, new rules are coming out constantly, new um, concessions and accommodations are coming out. But Neftali had linked us to a, a few specific changes that we wanted to talk about because we know that they are going to mean immediate, hopefully immediate help for a lot of our listeners as we're thinking about adapting our practice and meeting the needs of our most vulnerable patients. Yeah. So if you haven't heard already as a healthcare professional, I, I, I have a hard time believing anybody would not have heard by now if you're not plugged in enough. But uh, this is a to the point that you're making, uh, Grace, that uh, you can adapt and our systems can adapt as well. So I was very heartened to see not just the rule flexibility, but the idea that the system got feedback quickly enough about this to change rules around telehealth. So uh, essentially the long and short of it is that healthcare professionals uh, were bound by rules set up by DHHS that only allowed them to use HIPAA compliant telehealth solutions. So these are solutions that have certain technical specifications to protect patient privacy. Now in, in real world uses, there's not a lot of risk related to these sorts of interactions, but these things are there for patient protection. But they heard feedback and realized, hey, if we don't loosen this, a lot of people are not going to get care. So DHHS put out a, uh, a memorandum essentially saying, hey, we are going to use our discretion to not enforce um, any uh, use of non-HIPAA compliant sources. Uh, so I'll put that link in the show notes. What that means is essentially if you have access to Zoom as a mental health professional or, or even just medical clinic, um, you can use Zoom. Um, and you could always use Zoom if you had a business associates agreement with them. Uh, but now you can actually use any version of Zoom, any version of WebEx, uh, FaceTime, uh, Google Hangouts, uh, et cetera, in order to provide patient care. And uh, you won't be sort of held liable for any infraction on their rules. What was interesting to me with a subnote in the documentation was that you, you couldn't use things like Facebook Live. And um, I'm not sure why would you use Facebook Live <laughs> to interact with patients. Uh, that's a crazy medium. But anyway, uh, so that is uh, in the show notes link. I'll move on to another quick piece of news here, which is that I'm going to attach a link to an article uh, that I thought was really good. It's it's focused on emergency department settings, uh, but it's focused on geriatrics and geriatric patients in emergency department settings. Um, in either case, you don't have to be in an emergency department setting to really benefit from it. Um, 
uh, has really good overview of some of the risks, concerns. Um, it would be really applicable. They have a section on behavioral health concerns there as well that are important to look at. I, when I read it, I was like, you know what? This is really great. This is really going to sensitize teams to the unique needs of geriatric patients, including one of the things that caught my eye when I read it was uh, just noting that, uh, you know, when you dealing with a situation like this that is so uh it's just a big cognitive load. Just understanding that for older adults, 30% of whom couldn't have just age-related cognitive decline, just coping your way through this kind of situation can be really, really difficult. So it's a cue for me to remember that the cognitive load that this is placing on all of us can be even more challenging for our older adults um, who are already freaked out at the underlying nature of it, but maybe sort of, in, in essence, uh, hampered in their problem solving, right? Uh, which you really need to do a lot of in these sort of situations. So th that's all I have for us for news and notes. Yeah, and and I, if I could just, while we're on the topic of older adults, um, you know, I just kind of want all of us as a collective to remember that they likely don't have access to this type of technology where they're going to be able to have, you know, at least some assimilation of face-to-face -face interactions, you know, so that's where if, if you can pick up the phone and like call people, whether, you know, it's people from your church community or your grandparents or, you know, you know, if you have like neighbors that live around you that you have their phone number, just um, making phone calls to those older people who maybe aren't as connected through social media and these video chat platforms to check on them, um, make sure that they have everything that they need. We can, you know, drop off things on people's porches. We can send things to virtually anybody via Amazon as long as we have their address. Um, and also, you know, the mail is still happening. So, you know, get get cards if you have cards randomly or have kids in your house make cards or you make cards, um, get in touch with your inner five-year-old. We can do some, you know, inner child work and make cards and, and send them out to, to people. Um, I know that we all like getting mail, but especially if people are not having social media interaction, you know, just being able to get a card in the mail, uh, I think would be really helpful to those among us who are isolated and then even more isolated. I know for a lot of my clients that are elderly, sometimes the only interaction they have is they go to church every Sunday and now that's not even happening. Um, so they're just really, really struggling. So if there's anything, you know, our listeners can do just to kind of reach out and make sure that we're as a collective caring for the elderly among us, I feel like they're really the most at risk for struggling, you know, with the, the isolation piece of this, because, you know, like Neptali had highlighted, we do have a lot of technological um, support that we can reach out to, you know, in this generation and the generation under us. That's a great reminder, Amber. Thank you for, you know, speaking up for that population. I see that Deepu was able to join us. Deepu, I know you were pulled into a kind of COVID planning meeting and that's what held you up, but tell us how you're doing. I am hanging in there. Actually, like this is our, uh, we have a lot of uh, support staff that are part of operations for our projects. And uh, yesterday, there was some chatter about families and kids staying home and uh, additional support that they would need by not coming to work so they can stay at home and take care of things. So we held like an emergency staff meeting just to sort of figure out the next few weeks. Um, so that's, that's where I was at. Uh, but also, uh, how am I doing? I think 
I wanted to make it to the podcast because I knew this was going to be like 45 minutes or so that I can get where I can connect and not be in planning mode, responding mode, and trying to think through the overall response of the system. So, because there is no testing that is going on in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, it, and the first testing is going to start Monday and the medical school or the UT health system here is going to start at two sites. And so we are gearing up for that. And I'm trying to just help the team think through uh, what do we do at the end of each day? How do we debrief with the people at the drive-through testing process? And how do we do morning check-ins with them? Those are, I think, things operations are not thinking through. So I think from a PCBH lens, uh, just going into do brief uh, facilitation. Uh, so those are that's what I have to do out of the, this 45-minute uh, session that I have with you guys. So that's why it's like, I got to go to this podcast thing no matter what happens. Well, <laughs> I'm so late. I'm so glad you did. And I'm so, we have our whole team here, which is such a gift to be able to all come together. And um, I think that's actually a really nice transition to think about. So uh, when I planned our content for this year, I'd planned for us to talk about conflict among the integrated care team today. And it's funny how things work out because (laughs) when we are in a situation of panic, and trauma, and everyone's stress levels are to the max, and we're out of our routine, and there's so much uncertainty, conflict brews. I don't know if you guys have had this experience on your team. Um, we've had some some old conflict kind of rear up recently that I've had, I, you know, I thought had been put to bed and is coming back. And so I've been addressing that and think it's a timely discussion. But one of the things that a mentor told me one time is that when you are the therapist on a team, sometimes you become the therapist to the team. And there's a lot that we can unpack there. Some about just dynamics and our role in those dynamics. But also right now, I think a lot of people are turning to us. Um, and, I, and I know all of our listeners aren't the behavioral health component of their team, but a lot are. And so what do you think about that statement? And how are you experiencing conflict or, you know, the, the specific expression of your role as the behaviorist on the team right now? I mean, I think that I'm in a slightly different situation because I, you know, don't do in PCBH, don't identify as a therapist and whatnot. I get the the point of what that's saying though. And being in a leadership role, we've been really flooded with workflow, uh, having to rework the re, uh, our workflow and re changing all the schedules and making sure that we can do tele. And it's not just with BHC visits, we're trying to do medical visits that are tele and just being able to point out like, okay, hey, what kind of consent process, what verbiage needs to be in each and every note? Can you hard code that in? And so I feel like the situation that I've been in is a little bit more um, cognitively stressful of just like getting this like more of an operations and systems approach. However, when I am around people and interacting with people, I'm very cognizant to keep a calm demeanor and very factual and very, you know, kind of course, but let's stick to what we know Let's uh, try to standardize as much as possible. Some folks have been kind of going rogue 
And it's like, and they're like, what are you doing for behavioral health? What are you doing? And it's like, I'm doing whatever we are doing for medical visits that are non-essential, say like a diabetes follow-up where the person doesn't have any wounds and they're in good standing and they're going to do a follow-up. What do we do for that visit? Well, that's what we're going to do for BHC. Um, and so trying to kind of keep things standardized so that, look, we, if we are all in this together and it's not siloed, then we need to think along those same type of lines. And that's where um, I have not been fielding questions. If people are like, well, what is BHC doing? I'm like, go to the clinic manager and we want one voice and one message. Yeah, I think on our end as well, I think we've been trying to just help the clinic re-strategize operations. So for example, yesterday during faculty meeting and most of my afternoon, we focused on how the rerouting of the phone calls would happen, who would receive a phone consult from our physicians, and, and that goes for the BHC as well. Uh, I've been just thinking ahead a little bit, and I think I texted uh, Bridget and David just to get some sense of like, are there things that we need to anticipate to be provided for our uh, frontline workers in terms of like provider burnout, provider distress? Um, I was listening to the New York Times Daily podcast the other day where they actually had a physician from Italy who talked about what he was doing um, once the outbreak hit and what they were doing in the hospital. And they were doing some pretty in incredible life and debt decision making and the heaviness of that that they will eventually face. So I'm, I was telling my team, nothing that we'll do is going to like resolve the issue from like a behavioral health support point of view, uh, a consult point of view. But I think we do have our all role to think about the anticipatory guidance that we can play for our providers and our team members uh, in helping them think about this is an unplanned emerging situation. So our behaviors are equally chaotic in that sense. And that's somewhat normal. Um, and then sort of being the like what Bridget was saying, being like the calming presence, making sure that you're listening, you're not dismissing anybody, using our facilitation skills, learning to curb conversations when it needs to be curbed, noting when like certain conversations are being unproductive and just sort of like calling attention to a more controllable thing uh, that we can focus on and shifting the team away from that. We haven't seen any conflict per se, we do have a couple of people quarantined because of their travel and stuff. So it's, again, just the stress of not having enough people on board. So, and I think I also reached out to Neftali to just think about what do we do uh, in terms of anticipatory guidance for the workforce uh, from a PCBH perspective? And are there things that we can sort of provide as advisory? And I, I, actually, David Bowman, he just sent me an email with a set of PowerPoint slides from Carrie Stephens from UW, uh, University of Washington, that has a really good set of information for adjusting to uh, COVID-19 um, scenario that we're all in. Yeah, I would just add that an interesting thing that has come to my awareness is that a key feature of how teams are coping with this problem is related to how integrated they were to begin with, with their systems and with their teams. So Bridget, sort of like what you were saying, where you're just saying, well, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to do what medical does. We're going to mirror what they do. Right. Um, and that's what, that sort of clarifies the role in a lot of ways uh, for uh, behavioral health personnel on teams when they're that integrated, that it's just, 
natural. What you're going to do is you're going to integrate in whatever you're going to do. You're going to standardize those policies and procedures. You're going to have a uniform approach and mirror at least as much as you can what the medical folks are doing. Um, now, just real quick, uh, and that's for the medical, not like the non-acute. So, like, yes, yeah, totally understand. At, like a BHC visit somewhere between like a well child check, but more acute than that. But kind of like so, I, I we we established like a diabetes follow up where there's no open sores. They don't have any like major physical concerns. It was like our right. test. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, totally it, get. It. <laughs> but then, like, I'm in a situation at at my. Uh, the clinic that I work in just a half day a week where uh, most of our services are not uh, fully integrated. We're more co-located. My services, I work, I'm the only PCBH person there for a half day a week, essentially. And so um, it's been interesting to see because there's been more struggles. This sort of behavioral health has been a little bit more of an afterthought in the planning and it's, there's a lot more confusion, I think, around, well, what is behavioral's role and how can they be helpful or what, what's their role vis-a-vis the, the staff? And it really did create some real conflict for me um, it, it, as far as what, what, am I, what am I supposed to do? Um, I feel kind of um, tied to the faculty and residents in the clinic and I want to be there for them. Uh, but at the same time, the system doesn't treat me um, as a fully integrated provider. So how do I deal with that, right? So I think I'm just putting the, 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 the issue out there that I've also heard other sort of behavioral health folks really struggling with what to do because they're not getting direction from their higher-ups around that. They're, they're really struggling with, well, what, what is the role of behavioral health in this crisis? We can't solve the fundamental problem. Um, but can we actually play important roles on the team? Well, and you guys are pointing towards some things. I think if we can zoom out, if it's possible to zoom out a little bit when we're so close to the problem with the COVID right now, if we can zoom out is when there's role confusion, that's a thing that really can contribute to conflict on a team. Mm. So if there's disagreement about who should be doing what or what our goals of our team are in the first place, then that's one of the things that can cause some fractures and some disagreement. That's one of the things that I've noticed is that when we have had conflict on our team, it seems like it's there's underlying um, ideologies or assumptions or perspectives that bubble to the top and things that when things are going smoothly, maybe we never would notice or maybe those never would come about. But the conflict or the stress of the situation and currently the stress of our, you know, our world situation makes all those things come up to the top and become very visible. And so part of what I think we can do as providers who think systemically. So regardless of if our listener, I think that's one thing that is our unifying factor in CFHA, right? So regardless of if you are a, you know, if your training is more on the behavioral health side or more on the medical side or the administrative side, regardless of if you practice PCBH or more co-located or whatever kind of integration you're doing, our systems is, thinking is what brings us together. And so if we can use that systems thinking to look at what's happening in these underlying conflicts, what is what are the themes, what's the meaning making, how can I 
uh, to, to borrow a term from systems, how can I cut through the content and get to the process, then we really can get to the heart of the matter and hopefully help diffuse a little bit of this. And that, in my experience, has been what my role on the team has been a lot of the time. Um, and a friend that is not in our field at all, I was talking about a you know, a recent situation and how I'm handling it. And she sounds, you sound like you're doing HR. And I was like, well, it, it's not really HR in the fact that I have nothing to do with how much anyone's paid or, you know, what they do with their leave, but the mediating part and the seeing both sides and trying to help bridge that gap maybe does have some of those characteristics in common. And I think that's one thing that we really can offer from that systems perspective. Yeah, I think you guys are hitting the nail on the head as far as the underlying conflict and when it comes up and kind of, again, whether it's the medical team, whether it's support staff, whether it's VHCs, uh, you kind of see that maybe the folks that had a hard time buying into whatever was going on previously, it's like a thousand times escalated now. It's like, see, I knew we were treated terrible, blah, 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 blah. And it's all this stuff. And it's like, whoa, you know, hey, look, we don't even know what the process is yet. We're trying to figure that out. Uh, and, but it's because like Grace, you're saying it's, it's an underlying thing way that, that predated. Um, and then the crisis just accelerates it. I yes. totally agree with that. Like if somebody already had the beliefs, like, well, behavioral health isn't that important or it's not the same or whatever in crisis, it's like, cut the fat behavioral health is the first to go. And then it's like, Oh, well now we know your true colors. Thank you. We'll address yeah, it in the fall. I've been saying that about seeing true colors. I've been paying attention to like my specific team. I've been paying attention to the other teams. I've been paying attention to how things are playing out. And it's very, very interesting. If you can get past the whole grief and all the other stuff we were saying, it's a very interesting uh, uh, process. And Dave kept saying to me in our system, he's like, he's like, isn't that cool that you're on the phone with the CMO for and hit blah, blah, blah. And they're taking into account all the operations at the time. I was like, no, this isn't cool. Like, oh my God, we have this crisis. But now as we're talking, yeah, behavioral health operationally, we are falling in line. Like it's a hundred percent considered. Um, it's, it's, it's not even actually seen as something separate, whatever they're doing for all the medical providers are doing for us um, with a little added flair because they've said, Hey, look, if anyone's dealing with stress, we know a few good BHCs. So that was kind of the company message that went out. And so not that I'm going to become their BHC or become their therapist, but it could be an opportunity to talk about some basic stress and just kind of calming things down. And if somebody needs to chat a little bit about some self-care, if it were to escalate to like, you know, something more than that, I probably wouldn't take that on. But, you know, I think there's a role with some basic skills. I definitely, yeah, I think that's a huge role. And I think, honestly, I've said that the biggest impact of integrated care, and I know this sounds is gonna sound weird, but I think the biggest impact of integrated care is not on patients. <laughs> I think the biggest impact on integrated care is on the teams. And that is that is because of the ability to exercise leadership in those spaces. Um, and I wouldn't describe it. I think we get hung up when we think of it as like being a therapist role because um, it's not really a therapist role. It's more sort of like a relational facilitator role. That's why I think of it, you know, where where you notice when a provider is is irritable and um, kind of hanging their head and just not into the work, and you you are able because of your relationship to come alongside them and open them up a little bit and, and give them space to talk, right? Or you notice the registration staff gets frustrated with a particular patient, 
and you're able to come alongside and just figure some stuff out there to figure out what's going on systemically that 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 you know um, can be massaged and made a little bit better, um, or or, or even point. if you notice just like a system issue and you notice how the teams are not functioning well, and then you, you bring that up to a, a supervisor and say, hey, we should think about this as a, as a solution to, to, or something to attend to, right? I think those are the things that, that when you bring a person with a skill set of a behavioral health professional onto a team that you can get, assuming they assume that that's part of their role. To me, that's where the ethics comes in and the question of thinking about what is our ethical responsibility and where do we also know our ethical boundaries? Um, mm-hmm. Because that, that the behaviors that you're describing or the skills that you're describing to me lie on a bit of a continuum that I use those skills in therapy. The, they aren't the only skills I use in therapy and not only therapists can use them. And so what I usually tell my, typically for me, well, it's not just the residents, but the residents or the staff or the, the faculty, whoever comes to me to problem solve an issue or sometimes just event, I say, look, I'm good at knowing where the line between therapy and not therapy lies. And I think regardless of whether you see yourself as a therapist, if you have that training and background, that's part of your skill set. And I think it's also part of our responsibility to identify the boundaries of that and to, to say to someone, you know, this conversation seems like it's veering into a bit of a therapy territory. You know, I have this great person that I work with and I know and I can recommend, or we have this EAP opportunity through our employer or whatever it is, how you can divert that and connect the person. But it's not as hard of a boundary as I think it seems at first line. So we, I, my recommendation to people that are listening is we do have to think about that and remain cognizant and aware of that in the same way that our medical providers have to think about what's their ethical responsibility, where are they just batting around a question and, you know, versus where do they start to give medical advice that may be a dual relationship. Um, And and so I just, as we're thinking about ethical principles, I think that's something for us to think about where do we cross the line into a dual relationship and we need to stay cognizant and aware because the people we work with don't always know what is therapy versus what's just someone who has the skills of a therapist talking through a problem. And I, I also did want to make a point to that, Grace, is that, you know, I, I'm interested in those of you who work, you know, in these team settings, do you ever find yourself feeling like you have to constantly be in that quote unquote therapist mode where, you know, other people are allowed to have bad days and, you know, other people are allowed to, you know, have emotional dysregulation, but you as like this, you know, behavioral health, like professional, like you, you need to make sure that you're, you're keeping it together and that, you know, everyone sees you as this rock. I'm just interested. Is that something that you guys feel like you need to carry in these integrated systems that you work in? Yeah. I, uh, I remember when I started my, uh, doctoral internship, Dan Marlowe was my supervisor. And one of the things that he would tell me is, you have to be human enough, but not too human, you know, and uh, in my role. And this is like, this is the advice that he gave me on my first day on the <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> and it was interesting, because I was walking into a system where there has there were some issues with previous staff or like the previous intern uh and of course i found out all of that as i went along the training and 
so I, I always keep that in mind because um, we do have sort of like a, we may be the reference point for certain things that so we may not know people may be using us as a reference point. So I just always revert back to present moment awareness. Uh, if I'm struggling, just letting myself know this is a hard moment uh, and I'm going to hold it as lightly as possible, even though sometimes I just want to like just clench it and like slam it against the wall. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'll go to play, I'll go play basketball or go to Orange Theory after that, you know, just take care of that. Um, but yeah. Not today. Not today. Not today. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a huge point that's really important. And Grace and I are in a text group with a few of our other girlfriends that we all graduated together. So we often consult on various things. And yesterday I'm like, I'm trying to keep it together for this and this and everything's fine and don't worry. So here, let me just unload on all of you all. And then I was, I felt great after that and was able to teach for a couple hours and pretend everything was okay. Well, okay-ish with my students and and go on. And so I think it is really important for um, if you find that this is your role on the team that you're in, that you have some sort of outlet and support and that you're continuing to do just basic things um, that are good for mental and physical health, you know, hydration, eating, you know, the colors of the rainbow and not like fruit loops or, you know, fruit vegetables, um, get fresh air when you can move your body, unload, do something mindless, right? Like, so so remembering that this is, this will pass and that we do need to take care of ourselves too because we can't hold everything and then not release it somehow. That's great. And, and uh, Deepu, uh, I love that quote you gave from Dan Marlowe because it, it's totally true. You know, human, but not too human. Um, I, I think for myself, uh, you know, I've always struggled with that. I've been in leadership positions pretty much most of my career and even now as, as CEO of CFHA, you know, there's a lot of pressure. There's a, f- a lot of pressure I put on myself, frankly, mostly myself, not anybody else putting on me. But like, I'm like, I, don't, I want people to know, like, I don't always have my shit together. Like, I, I, I struggle with this. I, I, I don't know what the right thing is to do and, and what the next steps are and, and how to how to uh, bring the thoughts and ideas of, of uh, 1,500 people together in, in ways that, that are satisfying to everybody. Um, th- that's, you know, I think it's important to be a leader that is transparent in that way. And at the same time, it's important to also step into the role of, of being the BHC on your team, being the leader, um, being uh, a rock for, for others, not in an inhuman sort of artificial way, but in a way that, that really pays homage to the really good skills that you have as a, a professional. And this is true for our medical colleagues as well, like stepping into what, what you're good at and bringing that to the team, bringing your gifts to the team and being confident in that um, is, is just part of what you want to step into sometimes by faith. You know, even when you're feeling like you don't have it that day, you say, you know, today I'm going to, by faith, step out there and um, give it my all and give my team my all. And that's going to be good enough. 
well, I feel encouraged um, for, and empowered to do this work. Um, I want to summarize some of the things that we've said, because part of what was on my list was to give some pearls for those who are listening about, um, you know, pointers or best practices. And I think we've covered a lot of them. So we've said, you know, use your systems lens and look for the underlying and cut through the content and go to the process. Uh, we've also said, do your own work. So manage yourself and your reactions, take care of yourself, have an outlet, um, and be human and human enough, just human enough. And part of, I think what's underlying in that is what you just said, Naftali, that what I have is going to be enough and it needs to be enough. And I need to, uh, I hear this thing, we haven't said this word, but in a lot of what you've all been saying of self-compassion, of having realistic expectations for ourselves and just coming to the table and coming these relationships and using our gifts, like you said, but also recognizing that it's not, I mean, we're, we are really, really good but we're not superheroes and we don't have a magic wand and we can't completely fix it. And sometimes something Deepu alluded to earlier, we step onto these teams that have a whole history of issues and dynamics and uh, that, you know, I, I would caution people, especially people that are new to a team. Sometimes you see the problem way before you see the path to a solution. And if we jump in too quickly, and this is something I tell my my students too, who are, you know, beginning therapists, if you jump in too quickly to solutions, you don't have the whole story yet necessarily. And so don't just walk in thinking, oh, well, I see what the issue is and I'm going to solve it and blah, 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 because you don't know yet. So it's okay to watch. It's okay. And then bring what we have to the situation with honesty and authenticity and loads and loads and loads of grace and compassion. Um, and then the last thing I've heard us say is know your ethical boundaries. Um, so know where you might be crossing a line into therapy um, or into a role that is a dual relationship and be ready to set a boundary there when we need to. Um, I think those are, that's some really good tips and advice. And like I said, I feel empowered. I hope our listeners feel empowered um, that whether it is tackling a global pandemic and our um, systemic and personal responses, or hopefully in the future when this podcast lives on and we all say, oh, remember the coronavirus, um, <laughs> these ideas of managing the team dynamics and managing the stress and the conflict on the team will endure outside, again, process over content because other things are going to come up, other stressors are going to happen, uh, and we're just going to have to figure it out together. So thank you all so much for your input and for this conversation, and um, we're just about out of time, and so I want to cut to quickly our special segment. Um, <clears throat> we are going to have a series of special segments where we spotlight our different team members, and so stepping away from all of this, I just want us to get a little spotlight on Amber Gordon. Well, here we are for our special segment with our very first podcaster highlight on Amber Gordon. So Amber, I'd love for you to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background in general. Who are you? Who am I? Wow, that's a very broad question. Well, I mean, in terms of who I am as 
a person. I, as many of our listeners know, I live right outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I live with my partner and my dog, who's actually currently snoozing on the floor um, in front of me as we record this. This is coming to you straight from quarantine land, which we may or may not be out of by the time you hear this. But, you know, in in my free time, I actually am a huge nerd. I love musical theater. I like Harry Potter, like any of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm really into like sci-fi, fantasy, all that kind of goodness. Um, I play the harp, which a lot of people don't know about me. That's like one of my self-care things um, that I do. And, you know, other than that, I, you know, I feel like I like to just kind of bring a sense of humor and lightheartedness um, to whatever situation I'm in. I can absolutely be uh, serious, but those who know me well definitely know that I am super dry and sarcastic. I blame that on the fact that I was watched a lot by my grandparents growing up who are literally like nonstop BBC watchers. So I just like grew up watching British sitcoms my whole entire childhood. So (laughs) And well, just a little bit about me as a person. Yeah, I would say those are some things that I've picked up on you podcasting together over the last couple of years, especially appreciate your sense of humor. But I did not know that you play the harp. You know, I play the flute. I bet we oh. can do really nice duets. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe we can uh, come up with some quarantine duets. You know, if you find <laughs> yep. yourself bored with nothing to do, we can have a little online play jam session. Absolutely. Uh, well, so getting a little more specific to kind of the reason why we're here with the Integrated Care Podcast. What was your path to end up in this world of integrated care? Yeah, it's it was an interesting path full of lots of twists and turns. You know, it's funny like how we kind of plan out our our lives um, and then life actually happens and has a completely different idea for how things are going to go. I started out when I was like in just fresh out of high school, um, I went actually right to community college for my first two years. And I was sure that I was going to be a occupational therapist, specifically a hand therapist. Um, I knew that this is exactly what I wanted to do. And um, another little tidbit about me is I actually have a congenital deformity of my entire left arm. Um, it's not very noticeable to the naked eye, but if you saw my x-rays, they are pretty funky looking. Uh, so I've been in and out of hand rehab my entire life. So one of the hand rehabs that I had been at, they offered for me to kind of do an unofficial internship with them, um, you know, just to kind of like see what I liked, what I didn't like, all that good stuff. And so after doing this unofficial internship, one of the OT said to me, so, you know, what do you like the most about hand therapy? And I was like, well, you know, I got to say that my favorite thing about hand therapy is being able to sit there and like talk to people. And she was like, uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, I really like that. I really like helping them. You know, like a lot of them are like out of work because of their injury and they're like having struggles. And I really like being able to sit there because when you're doing hand therapy, you're sitting there across from the table, like literally holding somebody's hand. So you talk. And uh, she's like, you know, did you ever think that you maybe want to go to school for that, that you maybe (laughs) might want to go to school to talk to people? And I was like, huh. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, maybe that's not such a bad idea. Um, so that's kind of when it dawned on me that maybe I was a person that was supposed to talk to people for a living. Um, and I ended up finishing and transferring. Um, I finished up my bachelor's degree at Chestnut Hill College 
with uh, just a, you know general major in psychology and um, after that you know I I fell in love with family systems work. I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's me. Like I am a systemic thinker. Like I'm I'm gonna go and and change the world through like working with family systems. So I went on to a graduate program um, in Philadelphia, which will rename nameless for now because that actually didn't turn out so great, um, which is part of what brought me to integrated care. Actually, um, I was not able to complete that program the way that I wanted to. I did all 60 credits, did the whole internship, but wasn't able to graduate for some reasons beyond my control. Um, and those reasons actually relate to the topic that I'm going to talk about today. I was actually really sick at the time with chronic Lyme disease, but didn't know that that's what was going on with me. And um, I ended up having to leave school and get treatment, um, which took several years. But then I went back to school and my second graduate program, I am so, so proud of. Shout out to North Central University. Loved my program there. Um, and I was able to specialize in medical family therapy. And I just completely fell in love with everything to do with family systems and working in the medical field and being able to serve people who are specifically struggling with health concerns because it is such a factor that I feel like gets missed all of the time. Um, and I, I just know how it impacted me and how important it was for me to see a mental health professional who was aware of all the intricacies that come with having chronic health issues. And it was actually really hard for me to find that person. And I realized there's not very many out there. It's really hard for people to access that. Um, and I was like, you know what? I made, I made a pact with myself. It wasn't if I get better. It was when I get better. I am going to go and I'm going to be one of these people so that I can help other people in my circumstance. I love that so much. And I love how you have taken the personal and the professional and just really blended those together. Because one of the things that I really value of you is your authenticity and kind of who you are as a person, as a therapist seems to be so consistent. So you alluded to it before, but tell us about this kind of passion area for you. So I, listeners, I tasked Amber with giving us not too much <laughs> of a deep dive because we don't have a whole lot of time, but just to go a little bit deeper on something that's really important to her. Yeah. So um, like I just shared a little bit about, I, um, I was really sick, like for a really, really long time. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And not only did I not know what was wrong with me, but the I think like over 20 specialists that I saw like by the end of this also didn't know what was wrong with me, which is kind of one of the things that I would like to highlight in this segment. Um, but just to give the tiniest bit of background, um, I had a tick bite when I was 14 years old. Um, I live in the suburbs of Pennsylvania. So, you know, it was very normal. Like we would play outside all the time, like had a tick bite. It was fine. My mom's actually a nurse. So she took me to the doctor. They put me on my 10 days of antibiotics and we think, you know, good to go. Right. And it was very odd because ever since that point in my life, my health just kind of started gradually declining and declining and declining and declining. And my presentation was not what people think is the typical presentation, which I'll get into that in a minute. My presentation, I had a lot of gastrointestinal distress. Um, I had severe depression and anxiety. 
Um, I had a lot of brain fog, chronic fatigue, um, almost like fibromyalgia type symptoms. And, you know, so I would go to the pain management doctor, I would go to the GI doctor, I would go to five other GI doctors, I would go to the allergist, I would go, you know, at, literally saw everybody and everyone kind of piecemealed me and was like, okay, like, we'll give you this medicine, or we'll give you this test, or we'll do you this treatment. Um, and it was really wild, because now looking back on it, like, nobody even asked me, like, did you have a tick bite? You know, did you ever, what other symptoms are you experiencing? And I think that's also one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about integrated care, because it is absolutely critical that we look at human beings as whole people. You miss so much of the picture when you compartmentalize human beings, because just like, you know, a family system, we are a system. And you have to look at how all those systems are functioning together or not functioning. And, you know, that's really what's going to lead you to the core issue. So the funny thing about this is that I had said my mom is a nurse and um, she was working in disability claims at the time. She kept seeing a bunch of people who had very similar symptomology to me and they were being diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. And she was like, oh my gosh, I think this is what you have. And I was like, lady, you're crazy. Like, will you please stop? Like at this point, I had just given up. I'm like, I'm just a sick person. I'm going to be ill for the rest of my life. And then I actually was with a group of people and my friend's sister, who also has chronic Lyme disease, had a bunch of her Lyme. That's if you're in the community, you're a Lyme. Um, a bunch of her Lyme friends around and they, uh, they were talking about their symptoms and I swear it was like these people were talking about me and I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to eavesdrop, but like, you mean to tell me that all of that is because you guys have this, wait, it's not limes, it's lime. They're like, no, it is lime. If you talk to anybody in the community and you say limes, like they will jump down your throat. It is Lyme disease. No, we have Lyme disease. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So then I had to do what everybody hates doing. I had to call my mom and I had to say, mom, you were right which, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that was like a tough pill to swallow in and of itself. So then I went on to get, you know, more accurate testing. And it did turn out that my test lit up like a Christmas tree. And from then on, it was, you know, just kind of a struggle to find the right doctor to get treated appropriately. I literally put my life on hold. I was bed bound for four years. Um, four years, my life was just, I had a pick line. I was hospital, doctor, rinse, repeat. Um, and you know, I fought my way back and like, luckily by the, the, the grace of, of God, I'm, a, I'm okay. And, um, I really feel like it's part of my responsibility as somebody who has, you know, recovered. I consider myself to be in remission because I still have all these fun things that live in my body, but as someone in remission to make sure that I'm doing my part to get out there and spread awareness, especially as, you know, someone in this field. Well, that leads me to kind of the, the last question I have for you is what do you really want people to know about this passion area? What do you want our listeners to take away? I think especially when it comes to people in integrated care settings, one of the most important things that we can remember when it comes to this is that we, we just, we need to ask the questions, right? And I'm definitely going to give Grace a bunch of fun links to hook up in our show notes so that you guys can go and do your own digging and your own research um, because there is so much. Like I could literally probably talk about this for two hours, which we don't have. But, you know, the big thing is that if you're seeing patients, right, and like their symptoms aren't really explained by other things, if they have had, you know, a tick bite, if they have had tick exposure, if they 
even don't remember a tick bite, you know, like, but they're outside, they're like a gardener or they're a hunter or um, they're somebody who works as a landscaper, right? Like, let, let's think about these things critically. And remember that Lyme disease does not always present in the typical way that we think. It's not just about, you know, swollen joints and headaches and fevers. That Usually that is like an acute presentation. But um, long-term, you know, there can be anything from neuropsychiatric issues. Um, like I mentioned, there can be like OCD type presentations, depression, anxiety, suicidality. It, it, you know, really can cause, because the Lyme disease is actually a a spirochete, right? Like, so it's the same shape as syphilis. Um, so it can cross the blood brain barrier. So we want to remember that then that causes encephalopathy, which causes a whole host of issues. You know, it can be GI issues. It can be seizures. It can be muscle aches. Um, a lot of times people get misdiagnosed with things like fibromyalgia, MS, um, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, right? And, you know, whereas like those things do actually exist, but sometimes if you dig a little bit deeper, it it is actually, you know, Lyme disease. The other thing I just want to point out to people is that less than 30% of people actually remember being bitten. And then actually less than 30% of people will also remember any type of rash. Just because you don't get a rash doesn't mean that you don't have um, Lyme disease. And then vice versa, if you do get a rash that is actually indicative of contracting Lyme disease. And then ticks carry a whole bunch of other things. It's not just Lyme. It's, there's a whole bunch of co-infections, parasites, viruses. There's so much stuff that you could do there. One of the links that I will put up for you guys is a screening tool that was put together by one of the pioneers as far as what to look for for neuropsychiatric symptoms. His name is Dr. Robert Bransfield, um, and he's one of the top researchers in this area. And he has put together a screening tool so that people can kind of look at some of these symptoms and know, okay, like, is this infection related? Or, you know, is there like a mental health? Is there a genetic thing going on? Um, but just not to skip over that completely, because um, I think that we just literally aren't asking the question, is that part of what's going on here? I can imagine because of my work in this field and seeing patients who have such a complicated presentation that sometimes patients find themselves hitting up against a lot of stigma, maybe, or assumptions from their providers about, oh, that's psychosomatic or, oh, that's, you know, this person kind of like you said you had labeled yourself that you were just going to be a sick person mm -hmm. um, to have that. And maybe that was internalized from physicians that you were seeing, but it's just like, well, it, it's, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Because experience. And is yeah. Oh, absolutely. Against, is there anything we can do to guard against that as providers? You know, I think really just validating your patient's experiences. I know for me and you know, this is not anything against physicians. It, it is not that at all. But I feel like sometimes when physicians can't come up with a definitive answer for what's going on with somebody, they are not quick to, but like they almost default to dismissing the, the patient, right? Like if it's not within their wheelhouse and they've tried everything that they know to do, and they're still not coming up with an answer, it's like, okay, well then this, this doesn't actually exist. And that was, I, I, like, I can't even tell you how many times I cried myself to sleep because we would go to a specialist and I'm like, okay, this is going to be the person that's going to help me. And then they would get the test results back for whatever they had tested me for, which was obviously not what was going on. Um, 
And they'd be like, nope, you don't have this. And I'm like, okay, then what's wrong with me then? And they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't know. You know, um, you know, I, I've been told to do everything from like meditate to like exercise more to like, it was just, you know, like all the things alluding to like, yeah, this is probably all in your head. Um, and as much as I also hate to say this, but I think being a younger female, um, I was also like treated with less, like it was, my experiences were definitely talked down to, um, by a lot of the, the physicians that I came into contact with. And I think just, you know, being able to check in with our patients and, and being like, you know, do you feel heard? Like, do you feel like I'm hearing you? Like, I, I understand that we don't have maybe the answers that you need right now, but you know, this is real for you. Like if you're telling me that at six o'clock on the dot every single night, your, your joints hurt and it, it's the weirdest thing ever. And then you wake up in the morning and it's fine. I believe you. Yeah, that sounds weird. But you know, if they have Lyme, that actually makes complete sense. It'll flare up at night and then it'll get better or the pain will move around. Um, that's also something that freaks people out or their symptoms change from day to day or even from month to month. And that's where people do start to sound quote unquote crazy because you know, one month they're presenting like they have MS and then the next month they're presenting like they have migraines and the next month they're presenting like they have fibromyalgia. And that's another thing for people to pay attention to. Like if, if your patients are coming in and like their symptoms are all over the place and like they shift from day to day or from season to season or even from hour to hour, right? Like a lot of our chronic conditions are consistent. If things are shifting and changing, you know, that's maybe something to look out for. Um, as far as doing some investigating to find out if there is systemic infection going on. Well, I don't want to cut us off because I agree <laughs> with you. We could have this conversation all day long, uh, but I know that we need to um, get back to wrap up our podcast. Um, <laughs> so I just want to thank you so much, Amber. You know, I challenge you to bring a passion area. Clearly you did. I can hear the passion for it in your voice. And I thank you for the work that you're doing in this area. And we will absolutely add all of those notes in the show notes. And I know that you, uh, I'm guessing you would also welcome for people to contact you. Directly. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, whether it's through the listserv or the message boards, or if you want to, you know, I'll drop my email. Like I'm happy to answer people's questions to direct people to resources. Um, unfortunately it's, there's a lot of information out there. So I, you know, be really happy to direct people to stuff that's really going to give them accurate information and the tools that they need to better serve their patients. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for everything you shared and let's get back to the show. Thank you, Amber, for being willing to spill your guts like that and share a little bit of your heart with our team and our listeners. Uh, I want to send us out with a, a parting thought as we always do. And as we need potentially more than ever, I know that Deepu brought a poem for us. I did. And thank you for this morning, because this was essential for my sanity and balance today. So I appreciate uh, the space of our wonderful podcast. This poem is timely. It's called uh, Lockdown, and it is by a Capuchin Franciscan brother from Ireland. His name is Brother Richard Hendrick. And here it is. Yes, there is fear. Yes, there is isolation. Yes, there is panic buying. Yes, there is sickness, and yes, there is even death. But they say that in Wuhan, after so many years of noise, you can hear the birds again. They said that after just a few weeks of quiet, the sky is no longer thick with fumes. 
but blue and gray and clear. They say that in the streets of Assisi, people are singing to each other across the empty squares, keeping their windows open so that those who are alone may hear the sounds of family around them. They say that a hotel in West Ireland is offering free meals and delivery to the housebound. Today, a young woman that I know is busy spreading flyers with her number through the neighborhood so that the elders may have someone to call on. Today, churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples are preparing to welcome and shelter the homeless, the sick, the weary. All over the world, people are slowing down and reflecting. All over the world, people are looking at their neighbors in a new way. All over the world, people are waking up to a new reality, to how big we really are, to how little control we really have, to what really matters, to love. So we pray and we remember that yes, there is fear, but there does not have to be hate. Yes, there is isolation, but there does not have to be loneliness. Yes, there is panic buying, but there does not have to be meanness. Yes, there is sickness, but there does not have to be the disease of the soul. Yes, there is even death, but there can always be a rebirth of love. Wake to the choices you make as to how to live now, today, breathe, Listen behind the factory noises of your panic. The birds are singing again. The sky is clearing. Spring is coming. And we are always encompassed by love. Open the windows of your soul. And though you may not be able to touch across the empty square, sing. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you, team. Thank you, listeners. We'll see you again next month.